In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's the debate we've all been waiting for. We have got to win the primary, and I have the record to do that, but also have a record to beat Stacey Abrams. This party has got to come together. If we don't, we're going to default to a system of government here that nobody in the state's going to really like except Stacey Abrams. That was Governor Brian Kemp and former Senator David Perdue, who are about to square off in the first of three debates this week, starting WSB-TV. Our reporting partners. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Greg Bluestein, your host, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. Coming up later, we will look into why Raphael Warnock may be changing the tone of his re-election campaign. A reminder, if you're just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. But first, we've got evidence that we may be able to expect a wild card and some sharp arrows from Governor Kemp, as we heard back in 2018 on the debate stage. Brian Kemp, please question one of the candidates. All right, I have a uh, question for Clay Tippins. Clay, I wanted to, as you know, I've been in the private sector for 30 years, started a lot of businesses, started my first business with a pickup truck and a shovel. And I know you've been in the private sector as well providing for your family. And uh, I just wanted to know, you know, outside of Lieutenant Governor Cagle's government paycheck, how do you think he makes the rest of his living? Usually I've got good answers to questions. (laughs) I really couldn't tell you the answer to that, to be honest with you. I said earlier, I think after 28 years, Casey Cagle's bought and paid for. Ouch. Well, Patricia, that is the old tried and true tactic of using a sort of also rant on the stage, someone who you know you know is not going to end up in the in the final showdown to attack your bitter rival, and that was Governor Kemp using Clay Tippins to attack Casey Cagle, who was then the Republican frontrunner. A lot of a lot has changed since then. Now Governor Kemp is the incumbent, and he's also the frontrunner going up against underdog David Perdue in the first debate of these two candidates will take place on Sunday night at 7 p.m. on WSB, Channel 2 Action News, moderated by Channel 2 Action News anchor Justin Farmer. And I will be among a group of panelists asking questions of issues that matter to the people of Georgia. And I know, Patricia, you will be part of WSB's post-game coverage and also blogging and writing about it here at the AJC. So we've got uh, a big showdown coming up. And you know, so I, I think I was a little bit surprised that you know, Governor Kemp, usually the incumbent, the front runner, um, doesn't necessarily want to partake in as many debates. But he actually challenged David Perdue to four debates, and it was David Perdue who 
who who said he would agree to three of them and we'll have three in the span of a week. Yeah, well, to get ready for the upcoming debates, I went back and watched the 2018 debates from that primary. Um, and I was really struck by Brian Kemp was really quite feisty, as we heard in that soundbite right there. Um, like, didn't just ask the question of Clay Tiffins, but was like, how do you think uh, Casey Cagle even makes a living? You know, and he had the big smile on his face and Clay Tiffins kind of got into it and the whole panel laughed. And I think that um, Kemp is pretty good at debating. And so I think that's why he's doing this. I think also um, David Perdue has had a very spotty record on debates. And so this is a matchup that the Kemp team feels like they are going to do really well in. Yeah. At the time, Casey Cago, the the then lieutenant governor, he was at 40s in the polls. He was going for the knockout punch. He was trying to get to an outright victory, although it looked, even back then, it looked really tough because he just couldn't get that final 8% or so in the polls to get there. And it was it was uh, Secretary of State, then Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who was trying to get that second spot in the runoff. He was battling with Clay Tippins. He was battling with Senator, uh, then State Senator Hunter Hill. And then there was another State Senator named Michael Williams who was lagging far behind all of them. But there was this brutal battle and you saw a very feisty version of Brian Kemp. Um, but I don't think it was just because he was the underdog back then. I think I think even as we see him in the next three debates starting on Sunday, we're going to see a, a pretty punchy version uh, of a governor who's who's not going to put up with um, with he's, he's not going to let blows go unresponded. Does that make sense? <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And I think that is going to really follow along with the pattern that we've seen from Brian Kemp this entire primary election season. Um, he has come out just swinging against David Perdue from day one. Um, the very first thing he said about David Perdue was that he uh, lost to a 30-something nobody in John Ossoff. So how in the world is he supposed to de- to defeat Stacey Abrams, if uh, David Perdue were to win that challenge. Um, And I think that uh, at every time I've seen Kemp, right as the legislative session was getting started, I sat down with him to talk about the session and talk about the challenge. And he was so much more relaxed than I thought he would be. The headlines at the time were, oh, governor under fire, governor under the gun, governor's got to, you know, really turn it out to get rid of this David Perdue, Donald Trump challenge. And he did not, he was not. anxious and sweaty and nervous. Uh, he was just very feisty and um, pushing back real hard against David Perdue. And he's continued to do that at every campaign stop that we've seen. Every time he's asked a question, David Perdue said this, what do you think? Other campaigns you know, might counsel their candidates to, oh, don't take the bait, don't respond to your challenger who's just throwing pot shots at you. And Brian Kemp goes there and he hits back real hard. And so I think that is what I'm expecting to see in this debate. Yeah. The governor said there's two ways to run unopposed and scared. And obviously he's not unopposed. So he is running afraid. He's running scared. He's running uh, like his pants are on fire. And, you know, that's going to shape this debate because David Perdue has a lot more to gain than this debate than, than Governor Kemp. Governor Kemp is ahead of the polls. He is. He can command media attention with the snap of a finger. Any bill he signs over the next few weeks will get a lot of media attention. Um, any action he does, any executive order he signs, any any partnership he reaches, any press release he sends out is is almost guaranteed to get at least some media attention, free media. David Perdue doesn't have that ability. So, uh, and of course, there's the financial play in all this, which is millions of dollars um, more are being spent on behalf of Governor Kemp than they are for David Perdue. And time is running out for David Perdue. So he's looking 
to get some traction over the next three debates. And I don't know how he'll get it. We'll see. He has, I'm sure he's been uh, preparing for this for a long time and testing out different messages. Um, but he's the one who faces more of a challenge here to, 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 to get that media attention, um, to get a sense of momentum, to get sound bites. And look, we all know that, you know, we, we, we like to imagine that millions of people are watching these debates. Um, but really, most, most people will end up consuming these debates through sound bites, through social media. And so what the candidates are really looking for is a good 30 seconds or a good 45 seconds or a good minute long social media clip that they can put on Twitter and Facebook and rev up donations, but also rev up uh, attention. And, you know, David Perdue was on the wrong side of this in 2020. Now we saw, of course, he skipped that debate, the runoff debate against John Ossoff. But before that runoff debate was a general election debate he had against uh, now Senator John Ossoff, um, where Ossoff went on an extended monologue. And, you know, I was covering that debate live from my living room. It was down in Savannah (laughs) and I was covering that debate. And the monologue that, that Ossoff ended up being, it it was a strong, it was a strong minute or so. Um, moment, but I didn't think it was the, even the headline moment. I thought there was another interaction that was, it was much spicier. And so I led my story with that, but lo and behold, Ossoff's team put that monologue on social media and it just caught fire and it ended up getting 14 million plus views. And I had to go back and, you know, kind of amp up (laughs) that just even that (laughs) night, it was already getting millions of views. And that just shows you how social media has changed the game when it comes to debates. Oh, 100%. I feel like social media has changed these debates in the same way that having um, kind of cameras in a courtroom has changed debates. It's so performative and debates are performative anyway, but it's also just punchy and you want to get that soundbite and it can't, there's no such thing as really a good 30 second soundbite anymore. You have to land it hard really quickly. And I've been so fascinated to see David Perdue as the challenger rather than the incumbent Mm -hmm. on the campaign trail, because he's a lot punchier. He's a lot looser. Um, He tells us where he's going to be, which is a big change from the last time he ran a campaign. And he's been super aggressive and quite unpredictable in this challenge to Brian Kemp. And he has said things, um, especially as the polls have really not shown him Uh, catching up to Brian Kemp, he started to really push the envelope in some of his statements. David Perdue has said um, after uh, after months and months of saying, well, we just need to have a we should have had a special session to look at the 2020 elections. We shouldn't have had that consent decree, all this sort of mumbo jumbo. Finally, he just came out and said this election was absolutely stolen. You know what? Wow, he's he's never said that before. And here we are. He's saying that he I was down at a press conference. And for reasons I still don't understand, he really attacked the state patrol leadership and said that uh, Governor Brian Kemp had let that just wither to a force that was no longer elite. And kids used to want to be in the Georgia State Patrol and they don't anymore. Um, I was not expecting that. I was not expecting him to call teacher pay raises election year gimmicks and giveaways. Um, But that's where we are. Um, He has, though, stayed quite um, on it, consistent, aggressive. And so I think this debate is just going to be really good. And we can't eliminate the factor of Candace Taylor. Is she going to be there on the stage? She won't be in the WSB debate, but she is expected to be part of the Atlanta Press Club debate um, in a week. So there will be all, all the candidates in the gubernatorial race will be at that the last debate, the Atlanta Press Club debate. So that'll be a little bit more interesting too, because you'll get to see, um, it's not just Candace Taylor, there are several other 
GOP contenders on that stage. So it'll be fun watching them interact with Brian Kemp and David Perdue. But the WSB debate is set to be a head-to-head showdown. So it'll narrow uh, viewers' choices a little bit and and, and bring the two leading contenders um, uh, up on stage together. Yeah, for sure. When um, when the the lineup for this debate came out, uh, it was Stacey Abrams who said, "Why won't David Perdue and Brian Kemp debate the woman in the race?" Um, and Candace Taylor is has really popped up in a way. Um, she's strolling. She's polling rather um, uh, much more strongly than she had in previous races. I saw a poll recently had her up in the high single digits, uh, possibly even at ten percent. So I think she's um, you know once these other debates roll around, uh, she could also shake it up a little bit. But I think the one one-on-one with Kemp and Purdue, knowing all of their baggage, all of their background, knowing Donald Trump will 100% be watching <laughs> watching yeah. live from Mar-a-Lago. And you know David Purdue knows he's going to be watching live from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this is going to be just a fabulous debate. I'm so, so looking forward <laughs> to it. Well, to go back to that Stacey Abrams comment, you know, there's nothing more that Stacey Abrams wants right now than a runoff between (laughs) Brian Kipp and David Perdue. So when she sent an email saying, how dare the candidates not include Candace Taylor? There is, of course, a strategic reason behind that. That is to to help Candace Taylor drive up her numbers, her, her attention a little bit more. Candace Taylor is, you're right, she's in, she's, she's in one of the more recent polls, she's in the high single digits other polls. She's in the low single digits. Her campaign slogan is something to the effect of Jesus, guns, and babies. Um, she is, <laughs> she is, she's an interesting kind of far right candidate who's running to even, even um, David Perdue's right flank on issues, um, saying that basically the other Republicans are rhinos. They're Republicans in name only. She's the true Republican. Um, but she's also a PhD. She knows what she's doing. You know, she, she's, she's kind of playing the slogan to great effect, but she also has a, um, you know, a strategy in her own head in mind. But um, that's why she, her her presence will, will be sort of the wild card next week. But for this head-to-head showdown, it's going to be fascinating because um, as we heard in that clip earlier, there's no like third-party candidate or, or there's no there's no second-tier candidate in a way to, to play off of. I mean, it's going to be Kemp can only ask Purdue questions. Purdue can only ask Kemp questions. And of course, we'll have uh, all sorts of questions from the panelists. Well, Greg, you'll be asking questions, won't you? I will be asking questions um, that will be held a state secret until until the time of. <laughs> oh, but, shoot. You know, we can talk more about that later because I think we have a reader question about about this. Um, but you know, me and you have b- both participated in lots of debates, and we always like to be over prepared because you just never know. So sometimes I'll have twenty questions for a debate and get through maybe two of them. <laughs> so. <laughs> That would make me stressed out. I'd be like, well, no, which one am I going to ask? I think I would go in with five. I would narrow mine down to five. Really? Um, yeah. I've definitely had debates where I've, I've ended up asking eight, eight, nine, ten questions. Um, then I would go in with 11. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, before we get to a break, uh, we do have to note, too, that the Atlanta Press Club schedule has all sorts of other races up as well. Congressional races, lieutenant governor, secretary of state. And the biggest one uh, beyond the governor's race is the Senate race. But Herschel Walker will not be participating. He's spoken. We've talked about it. He's spoken about it. He is bypassing. We've talked about how he's bypassing conventional Republican events, rallies, um, uh, you know, pr- campaign forums, all the sort of trappings of your your traditional campaign in Georgia while he's also skipping the Atlanta Press Club debates. Um, he's so far ahead in the polls, he doesn't feel like he needs to meet with his challengers um, who are in the single digits for the most part in, in polls. 
Um, but of course, they say that, hey, not only will this help voters, but it will help sharpen Herschel Walker. If he can't meet them for a debate, they basically say, how can he meet Raphael Warnock for a debate? Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I mean, Raphael Warnock at this point is a seasoned, uh, not just campaigner, but he is a seasoned uh, senator. He debates all day. He is a um, minister, talks every Sunday, all day. So this is a real strength of Warnock's. He may have some other weaknesses as a candidate, but debating is not one of them. And I have definitely heard from Republicans concerned about this strategy. Uh, they're not as worried about uh, Walker as a candidate per se. They know he has huge name ID. They know he has this sort of crossover appeal because of his celebrity status, his football career. But they are worried that he's not going to be ready in real debates against Raphael Warnock. And not only is he not doing debates, he's not even taking any hard questions. So there will come a point when all of those things are required and there's concern among Republicans that he won't be able to meet that challenge or they don't even know what he'll be able to do because he's not doing it right now. He has come up with a variety of excuses for why he's not debating. Uh, For one debate, he said he couldn't be there because he had a previous engagement in Washington, D.C., which he probably, if he gotten a flight, he could have yeah, come that, back that for ended that. On a that Saturday was not morning. a real excuse. <laughs> yeah, that ended <laughs> Saturday morning. Yeah. That debate was Saturday night. So he yes, be. I mean, I can get back from Saturday morning to Saturday night in D.C. I mean, in Atlanta, no problem from D.C. Um, he was asked about this earlier this week at a stop in LaGrange, um, asked by an elected official down in LaGrange, why aren't you doing debates? And he said, listen, these are just my opponents trying to get publicity off of me and trying to take pot shots at me. And I'm not going to engage in that. I mean, now, officially, that is not the purpose of debates. Um, people can have gaffes and mistakes in debates. That's completely true. We've seen it happen. Um, but uh, the idea and the strategy to skip debates is not landing well with all Republicans. Exactly. Well, let's take a break and we'll talk a little bit more about the Senate race. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song the celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the political insiders and also two of the three authors, along with our, our colleague, Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell, who write the jolt every night and every morning. And today's jolt is a fun one because we've, we're exploring the reason why Governor Brian Kemp is headed to David Perdue's hometown next week. So read it and you'll find out. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. You can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Now, speaking of what's really going on, we can divine many things from what happens on the campaign trail, from social media, from ad buys. But really, one way to, to figure out where a campaign is going is their actual TV spots. And in his new campaign ad, Senator Raphael Warnock takes a different tone than he certainly did in the past election. I'm Raphael Warnock. I'm a dad, a senator, a pastor, but a magician? I'm not. So in just a year in the Senate, did I think I could fix Washington? Of course not. Now, Patricia, you know, this is a different uh, Raphael Warnock message than we saw or we heard in 2020 in the runoff campaign and even in the general election campaign when he promised a, a storm of change was coming, sweeping basically a revolution in a sense, an ideological revolution, if Democrats um, took control of the U.S. Senate. I mean, everything from combating climate change um, to uh, criminal justice reform to voting rights expansion, all these issues that he promised that, of course, Democrats haven't been able to fulfill yet um, uh, because of gridlock, because of their 50-50 narrow majority, 50-50 plus the vice president in the Senate, and because of Joe Biden's sagging approval ratings. All these issues are starting to mount. And, um, you know, we we have talked about this. We have reported on this. Raphael Warnock's um, sort of more independent-minded, his more populist streak, I don't know how exactly to put it, but you know, we're hearing him talk a lot less about the issues that he talked about last year, like federal voting rights, and a lot more about broader base themes like capping the price of insulin, like um, federal gas tax holidays, and also inching away from President Biden on immigration, on his foreign policy stances, on military issues like that. Um, we're starting to see a little bit of separation uh, as as Senator Warnock gets ready for his own matchup in November, probably against Herschel Walker, but against some Republican. Yes. Um, the message from Democrats has kind of gone from, yes, we can, to don't blame me. Like, well, <laughs> oh, I'm only one vote. <laughs> I'm only one vote. That was not the message <laughs> 16 months ago. Um, you know, it's very obvious what's going on here that uh, Democrats nationally have a really weak brand. It is so weak. Uh, other Democrats are very worried about really putting that front and center. And when they were running against Donald Trump uh, before, they were running against Donald Trump and doing a lot less articulating exactly what they would do and when they would do it. So now they have to really get back to business and reframe themselves. And, you know, I don't know that Democrats really need to take this tack um, of I'm not a magician. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I think that they have passed trillions of dollars of spending. There is a federal program associated with every single one of those dollars. Those are federal programs where those dollars will be coming back to Georgia. You can argue with the wisdom of spending that much money all at once. Um, but I do think Democrats have a better story to tell than I'm not a magician. So 
they must have uh, polling and focus groups to back this up. But um, this is another choice by our Georgia leaders that uh, that confounds me. <laughs> but well, it's, look, uh, luckily, I'm not a part of campaigns. One of the advantages that Senator Warnock has is a huge war chest, right? Uh, more than 20 million. I think it was something like 25 million dollars. I know I reported it. I just can't remember the number off the top of my head. But yes, huge war chest. So he can afford to roll out this ad one week and then a completely different message next week. Um, and look, he's he's been pretty much on air for months and has enough money to be on air all the way through November slash if there is a runoff December. Um, so, you know, he's got those resources. Um, so we might not see much of this ad or we might see plenty of this ad that that will remain to be seen. Um, but look, what we do know is that it, it, it illustrates the sort of pressure he's still facing from the left too, right? People who said, hey, you promised a storm of change. Um, you know, they got the infrastructure plan you talked about. They got the, um, the, the America Rescue Plan, the coronavirus relief money, um, Supreme Court justices, right? Democrats were able to push through some of their top priorities, but others uh, ha- have languished, right? Federal voting rights, uh, the Build Back Better plan, um, uh, in, and other priorities, criminal justice reform, other priorities that, that Raphael Warnock ran on. Um, and of course, we know that these things take a long time, but there are impatient voters, right? There's Georgians who are, who, who wanted more swift change. And um, I'm a quote from Chuck Todd, the MSNBC host, who called this spot um, the best of the, quote, letting the base down gently ads. <laughs> because these are, you know, he is facing, um, and as are other Democratic incumbents, um, liberal voters who, who wanted more, who wanted more swifter, more aggressive, more progressive action. And um, they're not seeing it quite yet. And that's that's one of the reasons why Senator Warnock is out there saying, hey, I can't just snap my fingers and make this happen. I've got to work with a team and a president and working with a very narrow majority, a one vote edge that could poof and disappear if Herschel Walker or other Republicans have their way. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I'm more a subscriber in the tell people what you did, not what you haven't done um, school of thought. Uh, but again, luckily, I'm not a part of campaigns. Um, but you're exactly right. He has so much money that he can he could he could literally cut a thousand ads and he's got the money to do it. He's got the money to run a thousand ads. It might not be a huge ad buy, but he's got so many resources that he can really um, pick. He doesn't have to pick and choose. He doesn't have to limit himself to four spots the way traditional campaigns used to have to do, or one spot for a less uh, a less wealthy campaign uh, to have to force themselves into a box. So he can see if this works and he can see who it works with. I think, I don't know that it's the base that he needs to let down easy. I think it's, um, I think it's uh, more moderate voters that he needs to let down easy and uh, let them know, look, we have done, we have stabilized uh, during COVID. We have rushed this aid out to X number of businesses. Um, But it is, uh, I think the progressives will see that a Raphael Warnock senator is a million times better in their opinion than any Republican who's running against him. And I think they'll come out to vote for that. It's the, it's the moderates, the centrists who I think Democrats up and down the ticket are really going to have to worry about in 2022. The so-called swing voters in the swingiest state in the nation, or at least the most politically divided in the nation. Um, that brings us to one of our favorite segments of the week, the listener mailbag. And we kind of teased to it earlier, Patricia, because I didn't want to completely blow the question, but we have a great query from, let me make sure I get the spelling or this pronunciation of the name right, Erin Wetzelberger from Camilla, Georgia. And she asks, 
Patricia, you'll go first with this one. How do you prepare for debates? Luckily, I don't have to de- to prepare for this debate because Greg Bluestein is doing all the heavy lifting. Um, however, previously, um, when I when I do host debates, if there is any previous footage from candidates who have been in debates before, I always go back and watch that. That's why I actually went back and watched the 2018 debates uh, to see how Brian Kemp, to remind myself how Brian Kemp um, was performing then. And then I'll go through... Um, you know, everything I can. I, I prepare like crazy. I try to over prepare for debates because you want to really find the question that moves the ball forward for voters, helps them understand better who they're voting on, um, but then doesn't uh, cover a lot of territory that's already been covered. And you want to be realistic. You know, some answers, some questions are so off the wall. They're not a good candidate's not going to bite on that. So it, it's a lot of to me, it's a lot of plate spinning and preparation. What do you think, Greg? Yeah, Aaron, what a great question. Um, I think we used to work together at the Red and Black. Um, but uh, Patricia's right. Over-prepare is the, is the key word. Um, you want to make sure you're not scrambling to ask a question off the top of your head. There was one debate where we had like like eight seconds left, and they quickly asked me if I had an upper, like a yes or no question for the candidate. So I quickly, I think I came up with, do you guys support uh, keeping the film tax credit in Georgia alive. And I think all the candidates said yes. Um, but, you know, generally you can at least prepare and you want to have follow-up questions and issues like that. But I think one of the hardest parts too is is interacting with the other panelists and making sure that you're not uh, ganging up on one candidate or that, you know, you might have a really great question for David Perdue, but three other people already asked David Perdue. And so you've got to ask Brian Kemp, uh, at least one and get one in there. And it really comes into play when you have multi-candidate, like when you're having four or five or six candidates debates. I've, I've paneled debates with literally, you know, I paneled the Senate debate during the special election in 2020 where we had, um, how many candidates? 18. Um, so we ended up doing two debates back to back, one of four or five or six candidates and the other with the, the remaining 13 or so that that participated. And, you know, at that point, you're just trying to get one question for every candidate in. And remember, they have got one or two minutes and there's rebuttals if they attack each other. So quickly, very quickly, um, that time gets eaten up. So it is a, a fun balancing act, as Patricia said, spinning plates. Um, Patricia, for our other favorite segment, segment, who's up and who's down? Since I was on vacation for a big chunk of the week, we're going to start with you. Who's up? <laughs> okay, I'm going to give my who's up this week uh, to David Perdue. This is not ripped out of the headlines, but the fact that David Perdue is getting back in the debate ring, I think, is a major who's up because he skipped his last debate uh, to great disaster for his own campaign and his own career. And so I think it was very smart to learn from that example and um, get in and debate uh, Brian Kemp, not just once, but several times. And I think that it's going to be really good for voters to have that to see uh, in multiple forums um, on multiple occasions. So David Perdue is my who's up for democracy. Uh, We did not coordinate this, but my who's up (laughs) was his opponent from two years ago, John Ossoff, who was back in Atlanta, who's back in Georgia, um, taking the recess to go on a spate of camp, oh, well, of of official events, not campaign events. And that's the reason why he's up. This is a reminder that since he he won, he doesn't have to worry about an election. He he won a full six-year term, so he's able to... Um, talk about more federal money for the Beltline in Atlanta and more federal money for healthcare um, in South Georgia and more federal money for HBCUs across the state. Um, 
you know, he's been out of the headlines to a degree because, of course, we've been focused on 2022 and the matchups. But it's all a reminder that because um, John Ossoff won perhaps the biggest prize. Of course, Raphael Warnock won a big one too, but but because he won that special election, he had to turn around and run all over again. John Ossoff, we won't see him on the ballot again until 2026. It is so far away, he'll be almost 40. He'll be almost 40. <laughs> he'll be almost Jay's age. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, 37. Thanks for wishing me a happy birthday last week. Oh, yes. happy birthday, well, Jay. Well, we wished it you in real life. I don't think we wished, lifted you in, 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 on air, but um, we'll have a special Jay birthday podcast. I have the screenshot. We'll have a politically Georgia birthday bash at uh, your neighborhood pizza place. There we go. Um, who is down, Patricia? My who's down this week is Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She has a challenge to her eligibility to run for re-election on the 2022 ballot. This week, Judge Amy Totenberg, the federal district judge here in Atlanta, ruled that uh, Congresswoman Greene will have to have that challenge against her go forward. A previous a, a judge in a different state in North Carolina had a similar case in front of him and said that that congressman, Madison Cawthorn, did not need to have that challenge go against him. Marjorie Taylor Greene is in a different situation, and she was ordered to go to a hearing on Friday to testify under oath um, for any questions that uh, the plaintiffs have against her. And so to me, that is um, both something that she did not want to have to do. She had a her, she had her lawyers try and, and join that case, try and get an injunction. Um, and that effort did not work. And now she's going to be um, or, at, you know, whenever we hear from her, it will be the first time a member of Congress testifies under oath um, and uh, likely about January 6th. Yeah, I, didn't, I was, you know, we didn't coordinate this. I, that was, she was my who's down to. Um, although, I let me add to this, um, you know, and I was talking about this at, at an event earlier this week. Um, but in some cases, what we think is down, the, the people we're talking about think is up. And rest assured, she is using this to not just raise her profile among her supporters, but also raise a mountain of moolah, lots of money. Raise money, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, she is raising, she is fundraising off of this. So as much as a big chunk of society of the American electorate, Republicans and Democrats are embarrassed by her antics, um, there is still a significant portion of our state and probably of our national electorate that agrees with her stances on these issues. Um, that is all for our show this week. You can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and Friday. And of course, this Monday is a special edition of Politically Georgia, recapping and breaking down that first debate. So we will see you then on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash 
unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.